Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. One of my purposes in starting this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast, was to explain that no event comes out of the blue. Every event can be traced through historical antecedents. The fight over Confederate monuments and the flag that led to deadly events in Charlottesville, Virginia, is an example. This podcast is from my archives. In October 1995, I drove around Mississippi for the BBC World Service. I had no plan beyond meeting people and talking to them. I wrote a series of five essays and read them on the radio. The last one was about meeting the sons of Confederate veterans. Like I said, totally unplanned. But this piece is very relevant to understanding an important point. The issues and the violence at Charlottesville didn't start because Donald Trump was elected. They've been around since before I made my trip to Mississippi. Another point, I traveled in Mississippi before most of the students at the University of Virginia today were born. Oh, and my voice sounds different. Analog tape doesn't age all that well. Have a listen and share this one around, please. As you drive along Highway 90 in Biloxi, Mississippi, just between the modern sports arena and the stretch of new motels and casinos, you pass a sign saying Beauvoir, the Jefferson Davis Shrine. When you're going a little over the speed limit, you only get a glimpse of what the sign is referring to, a magnificent 19th century mansion hidden behind a fence and shaded by huge oak trees. I decided to visit not just because from the glimpse I'd had the house was beautiful, or because it was a place of historic interest, but because of the language on the sign. The word shrine was intriguing. Jefferson Davis was the first and only president of the Confederate States of America, and the Beauvoir estate was his residence in the long years after the Confederate defeat in the American Civil War. If the sign outside his home had read, Jefferson Davis Memorial, I wouldn't have thought twice. But Jefferson Davis' shrine, with its religious connotations, seemed a little hyperbolic. But as I began my tour of Beauvoir, I quickly came to the conclusion that shrine didn't seem so far-fetched. The place was dedicated entirely to the cause, the southern state's futile attempt to secede from the United States and create a new nation on American soil. At Beauvoir, the southern confederacy is remembered as a vanished nation, its people vanquished, and their leader, Jefferson Davis, martyred. Davis was the only one of the South's leaders to be imprisoned at the end of the Civil War. Just as at a saint's shrine, there are relics. Chief of these is the Confederate flag, the Cross of St. Andrew, a great blue X set in a field of red, the cross filled with thirteen white stars. Beauvoir is an antebellum mansion built with the sultry Biloxi climate in mind. It's raised off the ground on a set of pillars so that the main level of the house can catch the breezes that come off the Gulf of Mexico. A local volunteer greets you as you walk into the grand foyer of the mansion and fills you in on the history of the Jefferson Davis family. I've visited many Civil War monuments, but there was something different about walking around Beauvoir. At Gettysburg Battlefield, the Civil War seems like history as a record of the past. At Beauvoir, the Civil War was history as unfinished business. 
The bookstore was full of revisionist Civil War historical tracts with titles like Facts the Historians Leave Out. The woman showing people around the main house was reading a book called What They Don't Teach You in History Class. Beauvoir is administered by the Sons of Confederate Veterans, a heritage organization for descendants of those who fought for the Southern cause. I asked Ms. Clippinger, the lady reading about the history they don't teach you, to put me in touch with the Sons, and she very kindly did. So later that afternoon, I found myself just down the road in Gulfport talking about the Sons with Dr. Tommy Hughes, a lifelong member. You get brought up in it. It's like going to Sunday school, Hughes explained. The Sons of Confederate Veterans have 24,000 members, organized into clubs called camps. Much of their activity centers around putting on great-granddaddy's uniform and reenacting Civil War battles, although Hughes admitted that wasn't for him. I have no desire to put on a wool uniform in the middle of summer and suffer like those people. Tommy Hughes maintained his connection to the Sons of Confederate Veterans in order to pay tribute to his ancestors and those from the Gulf Coast who fought for the cause. So what is the cause? The cause is the Constitution, which gives states the right to control their own destinies, not to be controlled from Washington. Not for the first time in Mississippi, I suggested that the right the southern states wanted to preserve when they formed the Confederacy was the right to own slaves. I'd like to be open-minded about it, but I'm from the South, Hughes said. My great-grandfather didn't own slaves. You can't convince me that he gave up everything to fight for slavery. He was fighting for something else. Then he asked me something white folks all over Mississippi had been asking me. Have you been to Natchez? No. Everybody tells me I should go. You really must go to Natchez. It's beautiful there, he said with dreamy pride. It's the way the South was. And as Natchez was on my way back north, and my time in Mississippi was coming to an end, I went. Even on a gray November afternoon, Natchez was indeed beautiful. Situated on a bluff overlooking the Mississippi River, Natchez was the first great port north of New Orleans. Most of Mississippi was laid waste during the war, but for some reason, the Union Army decided not to destroy Natchez. One local told me it was because Natchez was so beautiful, the Yankee forces saw no point in destroying it. People in other parts of Mississippi say it's because the wealthy folks of Natchez didn't resist fiercely enough. Whatever the reason, the town today is the only place in the state where you can see what Mississippi looked like before the war, and it's pretty impressive. There are dozens of grand mansions lining the streets, some in brick, some in white stucco, most with great colonnaded porticos designed to look like Greek temples. The houses are open to the public. I stopped in at one and asked in the gift shop if they could put me in touch with the local Sons of Confederate Veterans. They did, and by luck, that evening there was a camp meeting at the Ramada Inn, the big motel in town, and I was invited to attend. It was a dinner meeting. The head table was on a little dais. At one end was the American flag, and at the other was the Confederate flag. About 25 or 30 people were there. The meeting started with the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag. It's a ritual I went through every morning during my school days. You place your right hand over your heart and recite, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. 
When I was at school, I hardly thought of what the words meant, but in present circumstances the words seemed quite profound, particularly the word indivisible. The assembly then turned to the Confederate flag, and right hands open, palm up, pledged this oath. I salute the Confederate flag with affection, reverence, and undying devotion to the cause for which it stands. After supper, a video was shown. It was about that most precious relic of the cause, the Confederate flag. At a recent national convention of the Sons of Confederate Veterans in Chattanooga, Tennessee, a group of young blacks had brought pressure on the mayor to stop the Sons flying it. For some blacks, the Confederate flag is a symbol of their oppression. The mayor had bowed to their request, and the video told the story of the Sons' battle to display their colors. If I hadn't visited Beauvoir, I might have found the seriousness with which the sons viewed the tape comic, but I understood the importance of their flag to them. When the meeting was over, some people came over to me and asked me what I thought about the video, and I had to admit I was in two minds. On the one hand, displaying the Confederate flag doesn't seem an issue worth getting upset over. It's the rebel flag, a symbol known widely outside the U.S., even if the cause that it represents is not. But on the other hand, I'm not black, so I can't say what the flag means to someone whose great-grandfather was a slave. I don't think my Talmudic dialogue between two points of view impressed them. For the sons, this was a simple question of rights, and theirs were being infringed in this case. One fellow in particular, a round, ruddy-faced man, was extremely agitated by the fact, so agitated that I never caught his name, but I did catch his drift. He was in my face with it. The freedoms guaranteed by the Constitution were being so badly eroded by the coercive federal government that citizens of the United States were no longer free, in his view. Well, if you don't think you're free, what is freedom, I asked. But he rumbled on. Look at Ruby Ridge. At Ruby Ridge in 1992, federal law enforcement agents shot and killed a white supremacist named Randy Weaver. It was the first in an escalating series of incidents between the federal government and those who wished to live outside its purview that led to the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City last year. I got the sense that while most of the folks in the room didn't condone the bombing, they understood the frustrations that led the bombers to take their action. In a sense, the little groups setting up their own protectorates in places like Montana and Idaho, enclaves that deny the constitutional legitimacy of today's federal government, are the heirs of the Confederate cause. They are mini-secessionists, and the right to secede, to break the social compact that created America, was what these fellows' forebears fought for, and that right was guaranteed by the Constitution, according to the ruddy-faced man whose complexion was getting redder by the minute. Those states had the right to secede from the Union. Now, I was hot. I had spent the last two weeks driving around Mississippi listening to people's opinions. Most of them I disagreed with, but I'd held my tongue because my job was to listen, not to argue. But this guy was too much. I told him, first of all, that's not true. Nowhere in the Constitution does it say that the states can walk out when they want. Oh, yes, it does. And even if it does, which it doesn't, you can't expect one part of the country to sit still if the other half just walks away. You're going to fight to prevent that. Now the fellow was beat red. There's a lot of people around who think they know the Constitution, but they don't. And he stormed out. The calmer voice of C.C. Miller, a local veterinarian, interjected, Some fellas get a little hot-headed. Yeah, I see. 
In calmer tones, we continued to talk about our views of America, refracted through the disputed prism of the Constitution, which, in Sisi's opinion, had been degraded and reinterpreted away from its original intentions, particularly in religion. America is a Christian country, said the veterinarian. It was founded by white Christians. I said, look, it may be that the United States was founded by white men, most of whom were Christians, but the Constitution specifically states there will be no official religion established. How do you think I, as a non-Christian, feel about the idea of the U.S. being a Christian nation? He answered, firm but polite, you're a minority. That's tough. Sitting with us were a couple of teenage boys who attended private white Christian schools. And what contact they had with black people was pretty tense. Robert Bush told me about a friend who had been badly beaten up by a group of blacks. One day we'll get back at him, he said, with quiet certainty. I asked the young man if he ever thought about where blacks were coming from, what it was like to know your ancestors had been slaves, bought and sold in this very state, and then freed into profound poverty. Did he ever think what effect that might have on a group of people? He looked genuinely puzzled. I'd never really thought about that. The next morning I drove north fast, faster than I should have. I crossed over the Mississippi River at Vicksburg. I followed its western shore through Louisiana and Arkansas. I was still agitated from the night before, partially because I found the views expressed extreme, yet most of the folks in the room were not from the extremist fringe. They were pretty middle class, but there was more to it. I knew that their views weren't unique to the South. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can listen to more, lots more, at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. Please check it out. And while you're there, make a donation to keep these podcasts coming. Thanks.